Hey everyone, and welcome to the 67th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode. I've been sitting on it for a couple days now. I've been sick, so I'm releasing this episode late, but I recorded it on October 26th and I had Joshua Mahorter on the show. I met him in Auburn at Mises University this summer and I really like the guy. I've been following his stuff and we had some great conversations at Mises U and now he's been published in the Mises Institute, the Ron Paul Institute and antiwar.com. I really want you guys to go support him and subscribe to all of his stuff in the description of this video. I'll link to his YouTube channels as well as his Instagram account. You'll hear a little bit about this, but he was just let go because he's refusing to take the vaccine. Go give him all the support that you can and I hope you guys watch his stuff and I hope you enjoy this interview. We're going to be talking about the First Amendment and the stupid claim that you often hear in law classes or when you're talking to a progressive or whatever, where they say, well, of course we got to regulate speech because you can't say fire in a movie theater. And, and that's the example. And we we're just talking about the history of that phrase and the legal case that that comes from. This stuff is super interesting to me. And I love talking about the Constitution. And, and I think Joshua was the perfect guy for this episode. Again, please go subscribe to his stuff and, and give him support. And then remember to subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here's Joshua. Well, thank you, Joshua. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it was great to meet you at the Mises University in Auburn. Um, we had some really great conversations down there, and I see that you've published a few articles and and I think Ron Paul Institute published one of them, right? They, it, they reprinted it. They reposted it, which I was actually kind of surprised to see this morning. But but yeah, I've written a few articles that I have. Yeah, tried to submit. So I made it kind of a numbers game. I got a few, few rejections, ones they, they wouldn't take. And then, uh, so I just kept, kept at it for a little while and actually, uh, wrote a little bit for, for antiwar.com when the Afghanistan stuff was going on as well. And, and they were really, uh, helpful with that process as well. So, so yeah, it was kind of fun to write some stuff for them and foreign policy, but yeah, it's been, cool anyway. see, it's been cool to see your name around. I've, I've seen some people from Mises, you've published some stuff since then. And right. Yeah. Um, I, I love that event and just being able to meet people across the country and follow what they're doing. Uh, but yeah, right. I know I've seen a bunch of people publish articles this uh, over the last couple of months. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know these people now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to just bring you on to talk about those articles. But um, before we get into it, do you want to just introduce yourself and talk about how you came to these ideas, how you became a libertarian and um, sure. sure. Yeah. So my name is Josh Mahorter. Uh, I, well, in my constitution, I am still a, a teacher, but uh, I'm no longer employed as a teacher as of this week because of refusal to participate in the uh, vaccine mandate and show proof of that. And also uh, refusal to test for several amendment issues, but fourth amendment issues, ninth amendment issues, and basically a uh, refusal to resign, putting my uh, school boards or my human resources departments in the position where they basically had to, had to terminate me. And so I made them, made them fire me and, uh, and, you know, have walked through that process, but I still, you know, still consider myself a teacher, but I'm hopeful 
hopefully trying to move into uh, becoming self-employed so that I can fire myself. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> moving into that uh, area of, of helping people with their finances and, and maybe creating uh, more educational uh, products on the, the free market. And so, so anyway, I'm, it's been a crazy week, but everybody's been pretty supportive of that decision. And so it's, it's kind of affirmed me that this was, uh, that this was the right thing to do. So I actually made a speech for about five minutes to my school board last night, ending with the, the statement, because we all swear oaths to uphold the constitution. And so I ended with the statement. Now I take that oath very seriously as uh, you know, I was trying to do a religious exemption that which they rejected. And I said, as a Christian, I believe that my oath before God is it, that I need to fulfill that uh, and that there's accountability with that. And I said, and all state workers, teachers, administrators, sheriffs, they all swear the same oath to uphold the California Constitution, where I live, and the U.S. Constitution. I said, now, I take that oath seriously. I'm just asking you to do the same thing. And I said, and if you don't, there's only really three ways that I see that. Either you're being unfaithful to the oath, which I would consider that to be, you know, you're being a liar. Uh, I didn't put it quite so starkly. Uh, or you're having a failure of courage, which is cowardice. Or you're actually using the law and becoming the state's police force against an unjustly against uh, an innocent person, which means you're a criminal. And so I basically told them, ask them, I said, the only question really is, is whether or not this school is going to protect teachers like me. And uh, they made their decision. And I got the, the official letter letting me letting me go this morning. So so anyway, that's been my last uh, two weeks making this decision and then dealing dealing with the consequences. But anyway, that's maybe a bit much, but I'm feeling good about that. And uh, and you know, they, so amongst that time, gotten some articles out there as well. So. And you were, you were teaching the constitution, right? Like that was, were you a social studies teacher? Yeah. Yeah. I taught government and economics and U S history. Um, so, you know, I bring up all this stuff, uh, imagine what I could do with a professional lawyer, but I, yeah, this was stuff I was teaching them. And I told my students as I was, was leaving, I didn't explain all the details just to keep it appropriate with them. But I said there were some principles that I needed to hold to. And there were some policies that I couldn't comply with. And that means that I won't be able to work here anymore. And I said, now why I'm making this decision is because I need to be congruous with what I teach you guys that you don't back down when you think that the, the law is being uh, used against you inappropriately and you don't comply with it just for money or comfort or convenience or whatever else. So you choose your principles first. Um, so anyway, I told them that and my students were really supportive as well. Uh, they don't know the exact reason, uh, of the vaccine mandate and all that, but, um, but they did know, you know, that I, they were supportive of me following my principles. So, Anyway, yeah, so I taught that stuff um, and I still teach it, but uh, in other forms. So. And did the, did the mandate come from the governor or was it just the school board? It came from the California Department of Public Health and the California Department of Education, I think, was the one that really said that, that, that really pushed the, the vaccine 
mandate, which it's technically not a mandate, I actually learned a mandate is, is something that a judge requires something after the fact. It's more of an order. It's not a law because there's no legislation. It's not a mandate. So the judge doesn't actually give you a writ of mandate, uh, man requiring that you apply the law in a certain way. So it's kind of this in-between thing. And I think they're hoping that we're going to, to self-enforce. So is the Department of Public Health and the Department of uh, Education within California. But the, the fact of the matter is, I don't I can't vote for or against these people. So I don't really know who they think they are to, to order uh, a certain medical procedure. And so that was the sticking point for me. And then I thought about, well, maybe I could just test weekly. But then, you know, as you get this requirement of having some people who haven't shown proof of vaccination test and then some people who don't have to because they've they've complied, you have potential, I think, to create an environment for what I call a caste system between employees. So I, I didn't feel like I could be part of that. So I thought about it. But I'm like, now I need to take this, uh, take this all the way. And different people make different decisions, and I respect that too. But um, for me, this was this was a bridge too far. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very honorable thing to to stick up to your principles. Though I'm I'm going to the University of Montana here, and there's a mask mandate. Um, we're we're going to try to push back. And unfortunately, what happened here was that, along with Montana State University. Um, they kind of made it seem as if there wouldn't be a mandate on campus at all, and then passed the deadline for when you couldn't get a refund and when, if you dropped out, um, there would be a withdrawal on your transcript instead of just being able to drop the class without anyone knowing. Um, they enforced the mask mandate, and now they're talking about expanding it. And then um, there's even talk about a vaccine mandate on, on campus, which would be in direct conflict with. Montana state law. So we, we have a similar thing going on here. Luckily we're, we're pretty safe because it is Montana, but um, right. the university system is trying to protest it. Um, but it, it is a very honorable thing that, that you're willing to stand up for those principles. And I know it's very new. Um, I don't know if you're considering legal action or what, or have, have you considered yeah, that? I'm, I'm, it's definitely in my mind, but you know, it's, uh, and I would hate to do it actually, you know, it is it truly against this, the schools that I've worked for and kind of grown up in, but you know, the, the truth is like you just pointed out for Montana, the law is on our side. You know, I lo looked up a little bit more about this and the 1964 Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act says that they must accommodate a religious exemption. Uh, but, you know, the and I've explained this to a cousin of mine, we talk about this stuff. He's like, well, the courts will just strike this stuff down. I said, yeah, but there's an in-between time of action taken by government or requirement and then the courts catching up to it that you know, we, we kind of get uh, stuck in. So yes, I, I do believe that court, some courts will be, um, will strike this down. And it seems actually like surprisingly that the federal government is going, is going to follow the law on this type of stuff. But, um, but in the meantime, you know, you have to kind of be prepared for that. And uh, that's why I actually have an article coming out for, um, fee foundation of economic education talking about more kind of the personal finance part of that where i'm like well i had minimal expenses i had an emergency fund 
uh, of three to six months of expenses. Uh, I, I had no debt. And those are, you know, just three basic things that I tell people. And, and plus, you know, also as, uh, as a Christian, but you don't have to be a Christian, have this again, positive social relationships where it's like, you know, I have friends and family and stuff like that. So that, that protects you, you know, in this type of situation where it's like, I'm not going to be homeless and I'm not going to starve at the very, uh, very extreme. And so anyway, but, but those things were in place where, where it gave me a, more of the freedom to be able to, uh, to walk away from the situation if necessary. And so at least it took off uh, some of the, the financial pressure and stuff of, of that nature that a lot of people can't, uh, can't afford to do what I did because they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck, they're, they're working their job. And so they're not able to do, make that decision. So that was another reason that pushed me to do that was because, well, those, I'm doing it not just for me, but to kind of force the issue for other people who, who can't uh, force the issue right now. So that's, that's the decision I made uh, for those people to have somebody, you know, saying something as opposed to nobody saying anything. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to stay in touch with you and I guess, see what's going on and if there's any updates along the road and maybe we'll bring yeah. to talk about it in the future. Just if, if you end up having any legal stuff going on or uh, if you just want to speak about it more, but I did also want to talk about um, some area, other areas regarding the Supreme court and some of the misconceptions. And this is, this is your newest article or not your newest. It's, it came out October 26th. I guess that's today. That was when it was published in Ron Paul, the Ron Paul Institute, but um, you titled it why censorship advocates are obsessed with stories about yelling fire in a theater. And interestingly, this was perfect timing because I am in an American constitutional law class and the day before I read this article, the professor said, well, you can't yell fire in a movie theater. Um, so it's, I hear it all the time. Um, it's a non sequitur, as you point out in, in the article. And uh, my question is, Joshua, why do you want to yell fire in a movie theater? Why are you the bad guy? Well, actually, I, I would take it and adapt your question just a little. I almost put in a line in there. Have you ever seen the movie The Goonies? Yeah. I would do what the kid from the Goonies did where you have the fake barf on a bunch of people. And, you know, that's, that's more my thing, but that's, um, yeah, I just like yelling stuff in places. And, uh, you know, if I want to yell fire in a theater, that's my, my constitutional right. I don't know why law professors have <laughs> such a problem with that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of funny. Cause you put your finger on kind of the point, right? It's not allowed to yell. You're not allowed to yell anything in the movie theater you get kicked out for yelling in the movie theater uh, you're not allowed to do lots of things in the movie theater you're supposed to put your phone away you're supposed to do lots of stuff that you already agree to when you buy a ticket and contract and consent to when you enter uh enter a movie theater so it's i've always thought this was like a funny argument because it was like is this like a problem across all of America that people are yelling fire and, uh, and you know, there's a stampede, which could really injure someone. I don't deny that that could happen, but I'm like, was this like a national like issue? And turns out 
I've never heard of this ever happening. Um, and uh, as my uncle has pointed out, we were talking about this a few years ago. He goes, you're allowed to yell fire if there is a fire in the in the theater. So maybe you should uh, under certain circumstances. But but yeah, I've had friends um, use this as well when I'm I, I mean, colleagues who I respect, but uh, have, you know, discussions with and I'm talking about, you know, a just a very firm position on freedom of speech. I'm kind of a free speech uh, absolutist. And I've talked, you know, about a lot of this stuff with my students and they, they always come back to this. Well, we have to limit some speech. You have to acknowledge that you can't yell fire in a theater, but what that does and why that argument is, uh, is potent. I don't know why it's taken off like it has, but, but why it works is they take that. Maybe we agree with them there and then they want to apply that to, okay, Therefore, we need the government to limit speech in X, Y, and Z because we may need it in A. And that's where I, I picked up on this time writing the article that, well, that's a non sequitur. You know, even if you do need the government to restrict speech in A, yelling fire in a crowded theater, that doesn't mean that the government gets to restrict speech in X, Y, and Z and everything else. So it doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't follow um, was, was the issue. Um, logically, but but also historically, it's just a statement that came from the Supreme Court, as it turns out. But. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's the most interesting part of it is that I think if a lot of people knew actually what the Supreme Court case was that they they were referencing, um, and that right. that came from, they would be less likely to make that argument. But I mean, it, in my class, when when people mention that, they they tend to make the argument that well yes, certain speech is regulated in the country. And then they will use that example. But I mean, even that case has been overturned. Um, do you want to just talk about what Shank versus US was? And Oh, it has been overturned? I actually didn't know that. I, I believe that it was. I believe that okay. it was overturned, but I could be wrong. And maybe it I'll probably was. You're right. It probably was adapted um, because it had to do with the draft issues in World War One. And they, uh, a lot of that got refined by the courts during the Vietnam era of uh, being able to protest the draft, as long as you didn't suggest like burning your draft card or actually engage in something that would have stopped that. Um, although yeah, so I don't agree with the draft I, I either. I did look it up. So it looks like it was partially overturned by Brandenburg v. Ohio. Um, I think that's the one where the guy wore the shirt that said the F word, F the draft into a courthouse and he got a ticket for it for obscenity in, in the courthouse. He didn't yell anything, but they, so that one, the Supreme court affirmed, I believe that it was his right to be able to, to wear a shirt that opposed the draft, even with the F word, um, because, uh, I mean, how else? Because he was in public place. I mean, how if free speech doesn't apply there, it doesn't apply anywhere. As long as he's not creating a disturbance of the peace, I think is what it was. So yeah. I, if I think that's the right, right one, otherwise I'm talking about something else. But and and either way, like and people should look into that case, and I'll, I'll look into into it too. Is the the thing is is that the Supreme Court justice that decided in U.S. v. Shank, um, 
I mean, I mean, the case wasn't even about fires or anything like that. No. It was about the, the Socialist Party. Right. Yeah. So that that was when I originally wrote this um, or, or the bulk of this, this was actually some work that I did for a, a paper in my uh, master's program at uh, Southern New Hampshire University, where I think we were in a, a media, I think it was in a media ethics class or something. So a lot of stuff about <clears throat> about the first amendment <clears throat> and uh, so i wrote this up there and did a little research and then realized because i had always heard the fire in the crowded theater but i didn't realize that it was in a supreme court case that i think this is where that came from or it was a common thing people said even back then and it, it was uh, codified in the supreme court case but yeah what this uh, shank versus the united states is where this argument uh comes from and that case was about during World War One, some people, as you mentioned, in the Socialist Party, World War One, people are being drafted by the government, forcibly required to fight in World War One. And that's under Article One, Section Eight. Their argument is that Congress's ability to raise and support an army includes a draft. I don't see that. But that was their argument. Now, they the Socialist Party started passing out these pamphlets, including this guy, Schenck. He started passing out these pamphlets that basically told people, well, this, hang on a second, the draft is involuntary servitude or slavery, and that's illegal under the 13th Amendment. It's forcing you to do something that you, you don't want to do, and it's requiring that you, you work for the government. It's a type of slavery. So it's basically telling people the draft is a form of slavery, and and encouraging them to resist. This this case is also where we get the what the courts call the the clear and present danger test. That they say the government can restrict speech if it's a clear and present danger. And their argument is basically that if everybody starts reading this stuff and really starts thinking that the draft is slavery, that may inhibit Congress's ability to raise and support an army. That's a clear and present danger, you know, on a national scale. So their arguments on that notwithstanding, okay, they come to this decision where the Supreme Court sides with the government, you know, and sometimes they don't, to be fair to them. But surprise, surprise, the Supreme Court is part of the federal government, and then it agrees with the, the actions of the federal government in restricting speech and says, We've got to be able to stop people from pointing out stuff about the Constitution that we think that the draft is is slavery. We got to stop people by doing that. And what's their argumentation? Well, the government has to be able to limit some speech because otherwise people can't just yell fire in a crowded theater. And that's basically uh, basically the argument. In fact, I think I have. Uh, yeah, I have the quote here. It's from. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., okay, Schenck versus United States, 1919. It says, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words are, words, used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about 
the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. So there you have it. So he, he uses that dubious argument for restricting speech, but this basically gives government a blank check because anytime they can call something a clear and present danger, and they say arguments like, hey, you know what? We need the government to restrict free speech because otherwise, you, you know, people could yell fire in a crowded theater when there isn't a fire and cause a panic. But that has nothing to do with, with the case. And uh, even if the clear and present danger case is true. And then on the other side of this, um, beyond just the, the legal history, the other side of this is you don't need the government to get involved in theaters. The, the, the theaters do a pretty good job of self-regulating people yelling or, you know, shining a laser pointer on the screen or, you know, being obnoxious or whatever, uh, that they already do a pretty good job of self-regulating. And I don't know of any theaters saying, oh, my gosh, if, if the government didn't come in here and regulate people making a bunch of noise, yelling fire and stuff, I don't know what we do. So the government doesn't even regulate theaters right now. So it's just it's so strange that this has become it's just weird how cultural like things work like that. We've all heard this phrase before. Nobody really knows where it's from. As you pointed out, it doesn't even apply to the situation where they use it. But it's it's somehow this uh, trump card for we need the government to restrict uh, freedom of speech. But but anyway, it doesn't work. And you're welcome to use that, you know, any of that for, for your paper or your arguments in your, in your uh, as you say, as constitutional law class. Yeah, American constitutional law. Uh, you're uh, muted, I think. Oh, can you hear me still? Or right now? I can hear you now. Okay, yeah, it's my American constitutional law class. Okay, yeah. So yeah, it's... it's I don't know. I mean, it's, it's to be expected from a lot of these, these law classes, but I mean, I'm wondering um, just as you're, since you're a libertarian, I've been wondering while I'm in this American constitutional law class, uh, really the question about stare decisis and how important um, I guess precedent is. So like, let's say that this really was a, a precedent that was still standing or for instance, another issue, the vaccine mandate. Um, let's say it goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upholds the vaccine mandate. Do you have, do you believe that like states can resist a Supreme Court decision or do you think they, they should? I, I don't know if this is above your page. Should is a little different. Um, can is, is uh, definitely an area of discussion. Now, should, uh, there's, there's kind of different areas. Like there's, is it ethical is it smart? Is it legal? Those are kind of three different areas. Um, how important is precedent? It's important as a guide, but one of the earliest critiques of the Supreme Court from the Anti-Federalists and from Thomas Jefferson was that the Supreme Court's not supposed to make law. But Thomas Jefferson basically pointed out that whatever judgments the Supreme Court renders, doesn't that basically come to, in traditions that they leave behind? Doesn't that come to basically be law in the, in the, just a different way? 
Um, so as far as precedent goes, it's important as, as a teacher and guide of, of that. That's how English um, kind of common law worked. But where American law was supposed to be different was the Americans wanted specifically written constitutions. The British had an unwritten constitution. And, and they still have it to this day, and it's, it kind of works for them. It, it's not bad in, in a sense, but Americans want it written, and that's for some very specific reasons. The British had a system of unwritten constitutionalism, which was basically the laws of parliament over time through the interpretation of judges and the executive actions of kings came together to be kind of this legal tradition of, of British constitutionalism, which was really important because the American Revolution was actually an argument of principles of the British government is violating the Constitution. But if the king and the judges can interpret the Constitution and therefore say what the law is, then the Constitution's not really meaningful. So the Americans, we wanted it in writing. And so all the 13 state constitutions, all the 50 states today, the Articles of Confederation, it was a written constitution. Uh, the, the US Constitution itself is a written constitution. And all these people take oaths to uphold the constitution. Now they, they don't, and, uh, and I believe they should be held accountable for failing to uphold that oath. But the president should be a judge over what's constitutional, so should all the senators, all the representatives, and then the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court's actual role is if Congress makes a law or the president goes and negotiates a treaty that the Senate confirms, and it somehow in there contradicts the Constitution, the Supreme Court's supposed to provide legal insight onto how to handle that situation. They're not intended to be the exclusive and final authoritative interpreters of what the Constitution says and therefore what the Constitution means. Because if that's the case, then that means America's really ruled over by nine lawyers. You know, so uh, really five lawyers if it's a split court. And so, but that's basically the role that, as Thomas Jefferson said, that the court has has taken on. So precedent has now basically, it should have no legal meaning if they really believe something's unconstitutional. But it's basically, they've, they've said that they will adhere to precedent. Um, but really, they should adhere to their, their oath to the Constitution. Um, and I don't see that as being very likely. Uh, that being said, the states also have a participatory role in this whole process because the United States, failing to accomplish this or not, is, is built in the Constitution as a federal republic of, of sovereign states that joined the Union. And before that, declared independence and became sovereign states. And so they joined the union and then they have a written constitution, which means the contract is at least clear to an extent where it's obvious what the bounds of power is supposed to be. Now, of course, there's the Lysander Spooner argument, which I acknowledge as well, that 
maybe the Constitution's to blame for the government that we have today, or it was powerless to stop it. So I get all that. But just by the nature of what the Constitution is, we have the 10th Amendment in there that says that everything that's not in this written Constitution given as a power to the federal government remains with the states. So if this federal government steps outside its, its constitutional role, then uh, the states have at least a, a firm legal right to resist it. Now, is it smart? Is it ethical to do that? Uh, it depends on the issue. But, uh, but you can't really get around uh, the 10th Amendment. But, I mean, the 10th Amendment has, hasn't had power since who knows when. I mean, you've got Jen Psaki and stuff saying now that, oh, well, we know that federal law trumps state law. Well, I mean, that's, I would say that's probably how most Americans, uh, how most Americans view it. But that's not how, how America was built to be a federal republic. But, but I don't think America really is a federal republic anymore. Um, I think the size uh, of America precludes that from happening. I think it's more of an elected oligarchy where even the people that we elect, there's no way they can possibly represent us. Um, and so they, they more represent themselves, even if they're good people. I mean, that's even if you're trying to represent the American people and you're elected, how do you listen to 700,000 opinions? Yeah. Um, I, I just don't think that's possible. And so even if they're, this is being generous to politicians, but even if they're trying their best, how could they possibly represent 330 million people? Um, so anyway, that's a little bit maybe outside of the scope of, well, of the question of the even precedent. I think it was George Washington. He, he had a defined number for how many people a representative would actually be able yeah, to. Yeah, the Constitution still says it, one for every 30,000 people. That's this right. means we should have over 10,500 representatives in the House of Representatives. We have 435, which means that Pakistan, I think they have like 600, they have a better right, rate of representation of, of constituents to representatives than, we, than the United States of America, um, which is, is crazy to think of it. But the Constitution still says one for every 30,000, but that was changed in 1929. They locked in the House to being 435, and it was called the Permanent Apportionment Act of, uh, of 1929, locked in the House at 435. And in 1929, America was only 122 million people. Today we're 330 million. So it's basically a political class who they couldn't represent us if they wanted to, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, that, again, that may be a little bit outside the scope. But yeah, no, I, I enjoy all of this. This this really goes back to my roots with um, the honor civics class that I took in high school that really actually turned me into a libertarian. And I appreciate coming at libertarianism through more of like a constitutional process, even if you end up to a more Lysander Spooner perspective. And I, I honestly do. I, th I think it's right, but it's still important to use the arguments of the constitution, the intent behind the constitution and say that like, if we were going to pretend to have this contract and, and it's funny, like some people who 
more progressive minded types will say that it is a social contract. So if we are going to pretend to have this contract, then let's stick to it. And I think Scott Horton makes this point that even if we, even if we, if we stuck to the constitution and what was intended, we'd be 95% of the way there to what right. libertarians want. Right. You could, and I've made this case to my class uh, as well. You could argue that the constitution never had and does not have today any legal authority. Um, because if you look at, for example, the Virginia ratifying convention in 1788. Now, so the constitution requires that this, that you have a state convention ratifying the constitution, right? In Virginia, the probably the most important state at that time, 1788, they have their convention. They have people argue for and against the constitution. The vote came down to 89 votes. Yes, Virginia accepts the constitution to 79 votes. No, which means Virginia accepted the constitution by a margin of 10 votes. That means 89 people in 1788 for the whole state of Virginia for all time and forever, apparently accepted the constitution. Well, wait a second. That means that's not even a majority. That's a, that's a very small minority of people during that time accepting for the whole state of Virginia to join the union. And then here we are in 2021. So you could argue back then it didn't have any legal authority and it really doesn't have any today. Uh, that being said, it is kind of a fact. And, you know, all these these politicians swear this oath to uphold it. And they even made Obama re-say the oath when he and John Roberts got tripped up. And uh, that's kind of a funny video to, to watch over a little bit to just see as that happened there. And it's nobody's fault. It's just kind of a funny thing. But they made Obama re-swear the oath because you technically can't be president unless you've said those, those exact words. And I've pointed out to my students for years, it's funny that we get tripped up over them saying the exact formula of words, but nobody cares if anybody actually follows the oath or not. You know, you don't. You've never heard of a president being impeached for failing to uphold the Constitution or removed for that. So, and that's not even the Constitution either as a reason for impeachment. But I think it should be. But, but yeah, I think that right. If, uh, if I I could get more radical in my libertarianism and say, okay, well, the Constitution doesn't technically have this legal authority, but it does have this weight. Uh, in our country. And it does have a lot of these things like the, my favorite part of it is the Bill of Rights. And I think that uh, whatever problems, you know, we have, um, one of the things that has limited the American government has been the Bill of Rights. So things like, you know, that we have a very strong uh, First Amendment uh, tradition in this country. And that's not because it's written down on some piece of paper in the National Archives called the Constitution. That's because it's it's a value of uh, of Americans. And that's actually why, you know, I wrote like this type of article is that then the government tries to come in, get clever ways to uh, to restrict speech. And they end up. They end up putting guardrails around the First Amendment which is supposed to uh, be our guarantee against the government that that we have a right to speak, except not on, you know, not on private property. There, there are limits. Um, but and I think all the arguments against freedom of speech are not 
uh, speech violations, I think they're property rights violations. So they have cases like some guy honking outside of uh, some person's house or neighborhood at three in the morning. You can make a property rights uh, argument from there, but you don't have to have the government restrict speech in order to do it. Same with the yelling fire in a theater. You make property rights and contract argument there. You don't have to have somebody, um, you don't have to have the government restrict other people's speech to prevent that type of thing. Uh, another case, I think I wrote a paper on this too, that uh, it's, it's one of the most famous statements of a Supreme Court justice. I can't remember what the case is, but basically, Oh gosh, I, I remember all the details, but not remember the case's name. But the, it was a Supreme Court case trying to define whether or not the government could restrict uh, obscenity and pornography. But they had a difficulty defining what pornography was. And it's Justice, I think his name's Porter, Potter Stewart. And he said this famous line that. I don't know what obscenity or pornography is, I'm paraphrasing, but I know it when I see it. And everybody thinks that's so clever. And it does kind of make sense, right? It's like, I don't, you know, maybe we don't have, have different, uh, the little old lady Sunday school teacher would probably have a different definition of pornography than, you know, the leftists in Hollywood. Okay, fair enough. But I know it when I see it. To me, and I just, just came to this like last year, I'm like, that is a terrible statement because what that means is this the first amendment is now limited to a judgment call of the government hey that looks like pornography to me therefore i can restrict it and so it's just left up to a judgment call of particular judges or government officials oh well I see that as obscene. I know it when I see it, therefore I can regulate it. Well, is there any definition of obscenity or pornography? No, but I know it when I see it and I'll let you know if you, I'll hold you accountable if you've broken this, uh, this undefined rule. But that's not how law works. Uh, you know, you get to have this vague uh, thing of I'll let you know when you've broken the rules. And uh, so, so to me, that's, a, that's another blank check. Uh, to to the government in terms of free speech is they get to call whatever they want obscenity and pornography things that I'm opposed to in uh, in reality but not not from empowering the government to restrict uh, obscenity and pornography um, so anyway but that's a that's another case I don't remember which yeah. which one but we actually just looked at it we just looked at it in my in my class it's uh, Jacob Ellis versus Ohio. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was about a movie called like the lovers that was a, had a sex scene in it and it's shown in a theater and uh, they, they shut them down for that. They shut them down with the law. Now you could, you could easily avoid that with contract and property rights. People pay to go see this movie. The government doesn't need to go involved. People subscribe, people get online, people do these different things and you could exclude children. People who don't want to participate in that type of thing all those things. So it's not necessary for the government to come in and restrict, uh, restrict that. Um, but it gets into real complicated territory when you deal with things like public buildings, like libraries, city halls, 
where they do have to keep order, just like a private business, schools where you have, are dealing with minors, but, and, uh, and even like mailboxes, which are public property. So all these places, the constitution's still technically supposed to uh, apply, but they practically can't allow it to apply there because, and you know, as a school teacher, former school teacher, you can't let absolute free speech happen there, but you have to because it's paid for with taxpayer money. But you can't because you're dealing with minors and you have to keep order. Well, it's because it's it's a public entity. And so that's what creates that type of uh, that type of problem. You know, if it's a private school, it can restrict. Uh, if it's like a private home, private business, it can restrict speech. But as soon as you try to restrict uh, a student's speech, you have a reasonable expectation of doing that in a school but you don't have a very firm constitutional ground to do it. And that's what the, the bong hits for Jesus case <laughs> was about, where this kids hold up this, this sign at some Olympic thing, you know, that their school is going to see the bong hits for Jesus. And, and this court sided with the kid on that. You know? like, and I told, always told my students, I'm like, I'd be real pissed off if I saw you holding up a sign that said bong hits for Jesus at some public event. But I, I wouldn't, and I would involve, you know, stop you from doing that, but I don't have a constitutional basis for doing that. So that hybrid of trying to fulfill something that's a kind of a, a private need, you, you know, things that you have a private expectation for, like keeping order or restricting speech like a theater can do, um, but also having it be a public area that it receives taxpayer funding, which means the constitution applies there. Um, there's another case where, Supreme Court, they, uh, this guy was receiving pornographic materials, uh, magazines mailed to his um, mailbox. And he argued that he didn't want to see this stuff and that the government should be able to restrict that. But, but I actually made a case in a paper, uh, even though I'm against pornography, I made a case that, well, a mailbox is paid for and it, uh, by taxpayers. It's a public space. And therefore, that means that freedom of speech applies even in your mailbox. Now, if you had a private mailbox or an email where you can restrict, then that takes that problem away. But, but otherwise, but the, the court restricted. So with each thing, it's like this, this little fence that they draw around you that you don't see at first gets a little bit tighter. And they say, well, we've got to you know, be able to do it for these obvious reasons. But what people don't see is their their rights and freedoms get constricted, and now the fence is built uh, built around them without them even noticing that it was being constructed. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very like utilitarian way of thinking that I think comes out of like this this progressive mindset where it's like there are certain circumstances in which I would like to regulate this speech, so I'm going to build a fence around myself because these means benefit me right now to achieve this end, but then you're not looking forward at potential circumstances in which this would hurt you. And, and the perfect example is public universities, right? It's just, I mean, something that I try to argue here is, you know, if, if you really insist upon discriminating on speech, then become a private institution, but also you're the one who's opposed to discrimination. So there's, it's just like this, unprincipled way of thinking and it's, it's always whatever benefits you in, in the moment. Um, and 
we in Montana, we actually just passed a bill through the legislature um, just reinforcing uh, the, the freedom of speech on campus in, in Montana because Montana was trying to discriminate against speech. They, they had a free speech zone limited to a certain area on campus. But right. Yeah. And it's like, you mean America? (laughs) America's a free speech zone, except private property. (laughs) Exactly. So it it really does seem like the question is like, who is the proper arbiter for regulating speech? And it would be private property owners. And, And that's just a very consistent principle to uphold. Right. Well, and even there, though, they're, you know, uh, I'm, gosh, I've been banned on, not banned, I'm not allowed to live stream on Facebook anymore. I shared a Hillary Clinton suicide hotline meme uh, where she was calling the suicide hotline and asking to place an order. Uh, (laughs) And so I had a political page that got taken down over this. They warned me and they said, oh, this is about self-harm and stuff. I understand it was about suicide, but it was clearly a joke. So I screenshotted it and reshared it. And, you know, the um, there's a SpongeBob meme where he's like leaning forward. And he's like, talk, you know, when you talk like the every other letter is capitalized. So I did that. And I said, oh, this is, hurts our community standards. My page was gone and I'm not allowed. I haven't been able to live stream uh, since. So it's Facebook's right to do that. That being said, and I heard uh, Scott Horton say this and I've been repeating it recently because it's it's what i believe too that's free speech is not just a law it is and i'm glad that it's it's legally the case but it's it's also a cherished american value and that's one of the things that i see uh slipping away and one of the things that when i talk to my students about freedom of speech that i point out is i said there are two views of speech one that is becoming more prevalent is the, I call it the intolerance to intolerance view, which is a logical tautology and contradiction because is intolerance good or is intolerance bad? And it's both in that sentence. But anyway, um, where they see speech, not my student, but just these people in this camp, see speech as being on the same spectrum as violence, that speech is a lesser form of of physical aggression, where now silence is violence, microaggressions, this or that, okay? But America and the West came to this conclusion that speech and violence are fundamentally different from one another, and that speech is a preferable and peaceful alternative to violence, so that when you had two opposing views, two people that hated each other, instead of killing each other, they could talk and fight with their words. And maybe they go away still hating each other, but now it's a peaceful and and better alternative than violence. That's the other view, is that speech and violence are not the same thing. And so it is, Remains to be seen. America is a big place with a lot of cultures, so it depends how this will uh, will go or how much it will prevail through the, the whole of America. But it remains to be seen which view of, of freedom of speech um, we're going to stick with. But I don't want us to become Canada, which is, I mean, weird to say Canada is a, a, a free country, but they have speech codes. I don't want us to become Scotland, 
where a guy got in trouble because he was he taught his dog to salute Hitler to to make his girlfriend mad. He, he got in legal trouble for that in Scotland. And we could say that's dumb, but I mean, you really want the government restricting down to that granular level of what is acceptable and, and what is uh, not acceptable speech as if the government gets to be the standard and definer of, of what is acceptable and, uh, and what is not. That if they get to be the standard over, uh, over speech, then really they're making themselves uh, the, the ultimate authority. Of, of what is right and wrong and ethical and non-ethical. Um, and they're not such a great, they don't have such a great track record with that anyway. So, you know, with being ethical and, and all those things, but. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy that you, you brought up the Scott Horton point. I was at one of his interviews on Fox news. I, I think I, I, I've seen that clip where he, where he oh, says, Scott Horton? yeah, where he says that it's more of a principle of free speech rather than. Yeah. I think he was on chick named Kennedy or something. Is that yeah, his Kennedy show? I think you may have even posted it actually. Now that I think, think about it, he was talking about Afghanistan. And so that's probably, uh, probably what it was. So, um, yeah, yes, I think so. that that's it. And I mean, I think, I think that you're, you're spot on with, with that, that, that we really are starting to see conversations about speech equating violence and, and, that that's the case on the university here, especially in the philosophy department. It's the idea that if we can prove that speech somehow causes harm, then we can prove that it is something that needs to be regulated because harm is something that we regulate, at least how they conceive of things. And, and if, if they can prove that somehow it causes harm mentally, that equates to harm physically, and, and there's this, this weird argument going on, but what, what you end up having is exactly the conception that you just brought up where, you know, speech was a tool to avoid war in a sense of, uh, to avoid conflict. But now because you're regulating speech, you have to resort back to conflict in order to do that. You, you need to use arms in order. Like, like the idea is if, if you really put yelling fire in a movie theater on the same pedestal as punching someone, is, is it really the type of thing that requires physical force to enforce? Like, do you really want this to be the situation in which a cop or, you know, a Marine comes in to enforce this thing? And I think that it really, you have to ask, like, would you rather have peaceful conversations, um, peaceful associations with people, or do you want to resort to violence? Right. Cause it kind of comes full circle is you need violence now to contain speech, which the government's tool any government's tool is force and force is appropriate in some cases, rape, murder, theft, you know, that type of thing, kidnapping. Okay. Self-defense force. Okay. I'm okay with being used there, but force against someone for speaking their mind. Right. In, but it's force to try to protect them or to try to protect others from being harmed from that speech, right? That's that's what the kind of argument is that starts to become uh, compelling with people. But the interesting thing here is that every society has its um, has its blasphemy laws. It has its blasphemy codes. It has its things that you're not allowed to do 
that really the secular state becomes the the ultimate authority in the place of God to basically take over that role of it gets to be the definer of what uh, what blasphemy is. And the left and the right both both do this. Uh, the left probably a little bit more because they believe speech is violence and the right has a little bit more of an appreciation of the uh, First Amendment. But the, the left uh, wants political correctness and the right tends to want patriotic correctness, that you have to acknowledge the flag in a certain way, that you have to, uh, you can't kneel for the national anthem and stuff. Although that is a private dealing, um, though you could make an argument about changing the contract on someone in the middle of now you're required to stand up and do certain things. Um, but but anyway, there, uh, and then the left, of course, you know, silence is violence. That if you don't say, if you don't, if, if you don't speak in a way that you're being compelled to, you're actually doing harm to someone. Therefore, it's okay to use physical aggression against those people, which is, it's again, it's like, it's the intolerance to intolerance argument. Well, is intolerance good or is intolerance bad then? Because if you're okay to be intolerant to intolerance, then it's good. But if intolerance is what you're being intolerant against, then it's bad. So who defines, you know, what's, what, what's the standard of when you should be tolerant, when you shouldn't, what tolerance used to mean, and this is what's slipping away, is that I don't like what other people say. I will argue against it, not listen to it, this or that, but I still defend their right to say it. But that's kind of slipping away now, especially with with uh, generation, well, millennials and generation Z is that they they are moving more toward that speech is uh, is violence on the same spectrum of as violence. It's just a lesser act of violence. Yeah. Yeah, well, hey, I, if you have anything else that you want to bring up, uh, please do, and then and then we can let you go. I don't know if we touched on everything you wanted to. Yeah, no, it was a great talk. Um, well, can I plug my YouTube channel for a yeah. second? Yeah, please do. Okay, so I, have, I don't post on it as often as I should, but uh, Political Factions is my YouTube channel. Political, just, you know, type in Political Factions channel. Um, I'm also working on a channel, uh, Mahorder, my last name, Mahorder. Uh, finance. And that one, I'm going to try to be building uh, that up, not just the YouTube channel, but as a, as a business uh, for financial coaching with some people and stuff like that. But, but anyway, I, I, I hope to kind of be contributing to, uh, to both of those things. Um, but on the political factions channel is, is a lot of stuff of, um, of me teaching U.S. history, economics, personal finance and, uh, and government. So a lot of this over the last year when I was teaching at home, uh, I would be teaching in a setting just like this. And I would record myself with my, with my PowerPoints and talk through uh, these issues. And so, uh, so there's a lot of good stuff there for people who are interested in these, um, in these areas that I've built up uh, some stuff and footnoted over the years. So, yeah. Um, so, anyway, so yeah, so that's my stuff. Are you on social media? Are you on Twitter or anything? I'm not on Twitter. I've never been able to uh, to get into Twitter. I, I am on Instagram. If people want to follow me there, uh, I may not follow you back if I don't know who you are. I'm kind of new to newer to Instagram, but uh, but yeah, I'm on Facebook. If people want to add me there, 
um, or on uh, follow me on Instagram. I post things. Uh, I guess I post things fairly regularly. So, um, but it may not be may not be that entertaining. It's just a personal, <laughs> just a personal Instagram page. Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed all of this and I'll, I'll link to all of that in the description so people can easily access it. Um, and I hope to stay in touch. I mean, you're, you're a very good resource and a very good person to be able to talk to. And I hope people check out your stuff because, I mean, um, you'll be a very important voice, especially coming forward with the vaccine stuff. And um, I hope to keep in touch about that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm glad that you're, uh, you're doing this. Uh, I've uh, been been wanting to or for years been saying I would like to start a podcast, all that stuff, but glad to see you're actually doing that and making that happen. So good for you. So yeah. thank you. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Have a good night, Liam. I'll talk to you next time. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get-go.